0: In electrical work, one mistake can kill you. Welcome to the Get Real About Safety podcast. In our podcast, we discuss the new view of safety, what works and what doesn't work, to break down old paradigms and help you improve safety performance in your
1: organization. Hi, I'm Mike. And I'm Pam, and we appreciate you listening. Please share and subscribe and tell others about this podcast. You can find us on most podcast platforms and also on YouTube. Hello and welcome to this podcast. Hope everyone is staying safe in these crazy times that we're having and there is a lot of crazy out there. So, I am joined today by Mike, well not technically joined because I'm in my office and he's in his studio and so we're separated by about three acres but not too bad of a commute. And our podcast today is about human performance and NFPA 70E, the standard for safe electrical work. NFPA 70E focuses on three specific hazards, arc flash, arc blast and electrical shock, all three of which have a high potential for serious injury, or as we call that a SIF or a PSIF, potential serious injury. You've heard us talk about SIFs and PSIFs on previous podcasts, but these are the areas where we should place our major focus. And with the new standard coming out, uh, the revised standard for 70E, we thought it was a good time to talk about that. So Mike, you wanna touch on the new revised standard?
0: Absolutely. Thanks, Pam. And hello, everybody. Human error and electrical work can occur in a lot of ways. And as a result, in the 2018 version of 70E, a section was added on human performance. As of this month, January 2021, the new version is out and it continues with that section. This is the first standard that we have seen that addresses human performance principles. It's a well-written section, and it does a really good job of summarizing the topic. It includes how both operating systems and human fallibility can lead to catastrophic consequences. It also includes some error reduction tools that workers can use to help protect themselves. Keep in mind that a risk assessment is also required by this standard, and it clearly states that the potential for human error must be considered in that assessment, and, that the required electrical safety program or the written program that uh, is required by the standard also has to address this concern. So let's be clear. If you're doing electrical work, you need to be highly familiar with human performance principles and integrating them into your process. If you're an owner or a general contractor that has oversight responsibility for electrical workers, you need to be familiar with human performance.
1: And our purpose today is not to fully cover human performance, but to illustrate how error can occur and how some of the things that NFPA 70 requires in in human performance. If you've not had an opportunity to take one of our virtual introduction to human performance courses, we'd strongly encourage you to do so. Also, we are now adding virtual NFPA 70 courses that will cover the new 2021 version. So Mike, would you talk a little bit about the hazards that can be encountered in electrical work?
0: Yeah, you know, there are lots of hazards, but NFPA 70E primarily focuses on three hazards, and that is ART flash, ART blast, and shock hazard. So let's talk a little bit about each one of those. An ART flash, if you're not familiar, is a flash of fire. Sometimes it can be a little bit of a flash, Sometimes it can be a lot of a flash of fire. Sometimes somebody might get the tips of their fingers burned. Sometimes they may get massively burned over their entire body. An arc blast emerges from an arc flash sometimes, but the blast is different. The blast is truly like a bomb going off. It has all the features of a bomb. It has a concussion wave. It has uh, the heat It it can produce uh, many, many injuries, including uh, loss of hearing, uh, loss of sight, uh, severe burns, uh, pressure. Uh, The the pressure wave that comes from an arc blast oftentimes can break bones. Uh, And and that's just a few of the hazards. So the hazards are many, uh, uh, and the the types of injuries are many, I should say, uh, from an arc blast. Now. The third one is shock hazards. And I think sometimes we don't talk enough about the shock hazard part. The fact is the majority of fatalities in electric work happen from shock.
1: So what are some of the ways that errors can occur in this type of work, Mike?
0: You know, there's lots of ways. Let's just talk about a few of them. And and, and I wanna be clear about something Those folks who are familiar with human performance know that most things that occur in the workplace don't come from blatant egregious violations. They come from errors. And errors can happen in a lot of ways. And errors are unintentional. In other words, it's not a blatant egregious, somebody did something they weren't supposed to do. It's they made a mistake. And in electrical work, those mistakes can certainly get a person killed. So here's just a mistake, dropping a tool. This happens oftentimes when somebody is working inside of a piece of electrical equipment. They drop the tool. The tool causes the equipment to arc phase to phase oftentimes and will create either a flash of fire or an explosion. I'll just give you an example. I remember a case a few years ago down in Florida where a small mom-and-pop electrical contractor was doing some work in a bank. And this was a bank holiday there was no reason that this equipment could not have been de-energized. However, they chose not to do that. What happened is the owner of the company, and he had a helper with him, were working inside of a 480 volt panel, and he dropped a, a tool. When he did, that panel exploded, and both of those gentlemen uh, suffered the consequences of that. Now, the owner of the company, who was in direct proximity to the equipment, was actually killed. Uh, the helper was severely burned, uh, but it was a devastating accident that really should not have ever happened. You know, another little error that can happen is simply dropping a screw inside of a piece of equipment. Oftentimes, when somebody's taking a cover, like a bolted cover off a panel, they could accidentally just drop a screw in there. That one little thing alone could cause an arc flash or an arc blast. That's one of the reasons in the standard that removing a bolted cover is considered live work. Now, just accidentally touching a live circuit part. You know, when people are busy and uh, maybe they get distracted, it's very easy just to touch the wrong thing. And oftentimes that can result in uh, something like putting that person into ventricular fibrillation, which is a fatal heart condition. Another one is having the wrong mental picture or an inadequate perception of the risk. For example, many people associate electrical hazards with high voltage work. However, statistically, most fatalities, in fact, the vast majority of fatalities occur with voltages less than 250 volts. Another one comes from voltage testing. There's often a misconception that testing does not require anything special. Keep in mind that testing is considered hot work. You can't turn the power off and test the electricity. It has to be on. And therefore, it requires the protection as outlined in the standard.
1: You talked about uh, risk perception. And what we know is that people's ability to judge risk, to assess risk, is notoriously poor. We are very bad at that as human beings. Risk tolerance also changes and it changes, one of the ways it changes is with familiarity and with consequence. So since our human nature is to look for shortcuts, one thing we know about lotto work, electrical work, is that if you've got a 14 step procedure that humans will inevitably look to make that a 13 step procedure. And if when that happens, there's no negative consequence, they get away with it, and they not only can get away with it, they can actually be rewarded for that risk taking because as that procedure starts to deteriorate, we you know we did this 14 step procedure for years and nothing bad ever happened. Now we do it in uh, less steps, we get the job done faster, and then we get positive feedback from our supervisor for being so good at your job that that you're you're my guy, you're the guy who gets this stuff done and gets it knocked out. And so that just helps cement that drift, that drift away from our procedures. We'll talk a little later about how that um, we can catch that drift and how we can guard against that. Um, Mike, in HP, we talk a lot about error traps and error precursors. Uh, can you touch on the uh, types of traps and precursors that workers encounter on electrical work?
0: Yeah, you know, there's a difference between a trap and a precursor, and sometimes these terms are used interchangeably, but a precursor is something that increases the chance of an error, while a trap almost guarantees it. And, so, and that's why it's called a trap. Uh, some people refer to that as a landmine. Now, In electrical work, let's just talk about a few of the common error traps. Locking out the wrong equipment. It is very easy oftentimes when you have several pieces of equipment in a room to lock out the wrong one. You know, this is not any different than a surgeon that amputates the wrong leg. Unless there is some kind of procedure or some kind of flagging to let them know this is the leg to remove, it is sometimes you you get those sort of medical errors, right? Same thing happens in electrical work. So somebody goes into the wrong piece of equipment, thinking that one's locked out, and it's not locked out, and we have a serious event that occurs. Now, what kind of goes along with that, and something that is clearly discussed in the standard, is look-alike equipment. Oftentimes in a uh, electrical room, you will have several cabinets and they all look just alike. They're just in a row and they look just like uh, the other piece of equipment. And so somebody locks out piece of equipment B, they take a break or they get an interruption or some distraction occurs and they go back to do the work and they start on a piece of equipment C that has not been locked out. And then we have a catastrophic event that occurs. Another error trap is things like um, additional feeds that may have been added. You know, this happens oftentimes in an industrial plant, for example, where a piece of equipment is installed. And over the years, additional electrical feeds are added to that piece of equipment, but people are not aware of it. And so they go in and work on it. They think they have everything locked out, and it's not locked out. And unless someone walks down the system or at a very minimum reviews the line drawings prior to the work, they may not know that that is the case. And so they have an inadequate mental picture of how things are supposed to be. Another one, and you kind of referred to this a few minutes ago, Pam, is that lockout and tagout procedures that don't match the work. Uh, this is a big one. Anytime that workers are required to follow procedures, but the, procedures don't match the work and they conflict with the reality and the field, they will always take shortcuts, especially the more pressure they have to get the work done. Uh, now, Pam talked about SIFs and p serious injuries and fatalities and potential serious injuries and fatalities. And within that realm of serious injury and fatality prevention, uh, it requires us to look at what we call SIF precursors. That's a big one. People skipping steps and procedures. Now, skipping steps in a procedure is not a cause. That is a symptom of a deeper issue. uh, And that usually has something to do with the procedure not matching the work. Uh, Oftentimes procedures are written by people that don't do the work and sometimes they just simply don't match. Another one is, is mislabeled components. Now you can imagine this, that you have a line of circuits and maybe there are 10 circuits, right? and they're labeled one through 10. But over time, somebody goes in and does some work on them, and the labeling gets changed. And so where circuit number seven is supposed to be, that's now circuit number 10. And circuit number 10 is now down where circuit number seven is. And somebody making the assumption that things are like they always have been goes and works on the wrong circuit, which is not locked out, of course, and we have a catastrophic event. Now, error precursors are a little bit different. Error precursors are things like rushing, distractions, interruptions, fatigue, uh, maybe misinterpretation of work instruction. In fact, there are many more. Uh, Those who have taken our human performance courses know we discuss uh, a lot of these different error precursors. There are many of them, but these are some common ones. So rushing, for example, when people are in a rush, it always increases the chance of somebody making an error. When people are distracted or they're interrupted for whatever reason, somebody walks in to talk to them, uh, they get a call on the radio, uh, they're called to go look at something else, uh, uh, some other piece of equipment, and then come back to this piece of equipment. Uh, Those things always increase the chance of error. Fatigue, you know, we all know that when somebody is overly tired, or let's say they're ill, they have the flu. It will, you know, not only will it dramatically increase the chance of errors, but it will increase the chance of people taking shortcuts. People will, by necessity, take shortcuts and expend less effort when they are overly fatigued. Another one is just misinterpretation of work instruction. Sometimes, people misunderstand what the supervisor told them, or they may misunderstand a drawing. And unless some type of clarification tool is used to make sure that that person is very clear on the work instruction, they may perform the wrong activity or or perform the wrong steps in assembly, and then it ends up in a catastrophic event.
1: I think we can agree that most of those error traps and precursors emerge from the operating system itself. Um, Rushing and fatigue often stems from inadequate staffing or unrealistic schedules. And uh, I think most of us, uh, especially on the construction side, have experienced that when workers feel pressure to produce, but they're shorthanded or overly tired, they'll, they'll take shortcuts out of necessity. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about the system-induced errors?
0: Yes, you know, staffing and schedules are often set by people who don't do the work. And often, they haven't done the work at all. And they don't realize the daily complications, the daily difficulties, and the complexities faced by the workers themselves. If you're familiar with human performance, uh, you know that we use a model called work as imagined versus work as practice. For those not familiar with that we illustrate that with a line a straight line with an x the x represents an event Uh, we also have a crooked blue line and the straight line is work as imagined uh, or work as planned Uh, oftentimes we produce plans and we expect people to follow that plan perfectly but Anybody based in reality knows that nothing is ever perfect out in the workplace. Things are in the way. This tool's not available. This machine won't start. Schedules get switched up on people. Nothing is ever perfect. And so that crooked blue line represents work as it is actually practiced. Now, the difference between how we plan to work and how it is actually practiced is called an operational gap. And it's critical we understand that. And people who have never done the work can't possibly understand what it takes to actually do the work unless they're engaging themselves with the people who do do the work. That's why people have to understand that human performance is not just about error reduction. It's really about systems thinking. It's about understanding how our operating systems set the stage for errors and at-risk behaviors. In other words, we place way too much emphasis on trying to fix the workers rather than trying to fix the system in which they work. Now informational Annex Q does a really good job of addressing how we should focus on the system in addition to, to reducing errors. While we're at it, let me say this, the standard also requires that all electrical incidents be investigated. And this includes near misses or close calls. If you're familiar with HP, this does not mean to go out and blame the workers the way most standard, traditional incident investigations do. It means learning teams. Teams made up of people who actually do the work, who are the closest to the risks to uncover the deeper organizational influences that lead to errors and at-risk behaviors. In fact, I'll just say it here. Most traditional investigations are BS. And most are just a complete waste of time. Most focus on unsafe acts and unsafe conditions, which are not causes. They are symptoms of deeper problems in the organization. If we don't get down to those deeper issues, we just relive Groundhog Day over and over and over again.
1: Now the standard does offer us some uh, suggestions of error reduction tools that employees can use to protect themselves. So can you talk about that a little
0: Yes, they do, and the tools are good. You know, the tools work very well. However, here's the caution. They are the last line of defense. You're dependent on the worker to actually use those tools. To be effective, the workers have to be trained in the tools. They have to be encouraged to use the tools and positively reinforced for using them. So let's talk about a few of these tools. They're they're very good. I, You know, I do encourage, I think we should Uh, Always look to reduce as many errors as we possibly can uh, through both use of tools and also fixing our operating systems. Uh, The first one, and this is required by the standard, is a pre-work briefing. The standard does require a pre-work briefing that takes place just before the work starts. And, you know, honestly, preferably it should happen right in front of the equipment, just before the work starts. And the whole purpose of that pre-work briefing is to clarify any misinterpretation about the work, it's to discuss the hazards, it's to discuss the, um, the approach boundaries, it's to discuss the, the work methods and practices that are to be used to do that particular task. And so it's huge. I mean, it really is not just something that's nice to do, it's required by the standard. Now, another tool, and in the standard, they refer to it as a job site review. Uh, In most HP publications, it's referred to as a two-minute rule, and it's used in conjunction with a pre-work briefing. What that is is after the pre-work briefing is just to walk the work area for a couple of minutes and look for any hazards that may have been missed or unanticipated by the energized electrical work permit uh, and the pre-work briefing. Another tool, and this is a great tool, is a post-work briefing. Post work briefings are not used enough. What a post work briefing is, is it is a short discussion about the work that has just occurred. In other words, it is sort of an after action review to determine what worked and what didn't work. Where did we have to make do? Where did we have to improvise? What hazards did we anticipate? Which ones did we miss when we did that pre work briefing? And that helps to do better planning and better briefings in the future. Another tool, and it's a pretty common one, is called Procedure Use and Adherence. What this has to do with is having a procedure, making sure that that procedure matches the work, making sure that that procedure is available right there at the work location where it can be reviewed by both the supervisor and the workers before doing the work, and the adherence part means following that procedure without deviation. However, that pins, it matches the work. If that procedure does not match the work, then they should stop. They should get with the supervisor. If they have to elevate that to a higher level, they elevate it to a higher level and maybe have that procedure revised before proceeding with the work. Another tool, and I'll tell you, this is a really good tool, is called STAR. It's basically a form of self-check. And what STAR stands for is stop, think, act, and review. Stop, think, act, and review. Here's why that is important. Some of you in our HP classes know that we talk about the fact that we've got two kinds of brains. We've got a fast brain and we have a slow brain. The fast brain, which lies in the back of the skull, is where emotional-based reactions take place, fight or flight reactions take place, and instant reactions take place. And, you know, we kind of need that because if somebody's getting ready to uh, get run over by a forklift, You need them to think and act quickly, right? However, that fast brain can also get somebody killed. We have a slow brain. The slow brain lies in the front of the skull. It's the prefrontal cortex. And that is where logic, reasoning, problem solving takes place. Now, the problem with that is that the slow brain runs a couple of seconds behind the fast brain. And usually we're running on fast brain. The only reason I tell you all of this is to explain why STAR works. STAR is designed directly to affect the fast slow brain responses. In other words, most of the time we're out there running on fast brain. And especially when people are under a lot of production pressure and they're rushing, they're running on fast brain. STAR, what that is, and it comes out of the nuclear industry honestly, is before performing a function is to stop, think about what we're doing, then we perform the function, Then we review it to make sure we performed the right function. It is a very, very good tool. And every employee really should be trying to use it. Uh, You know, once they use it, they start uh, and they see how well it works, then it kind of becomes a natural thing.
1: I have to say that that was one that I was pretty skeptical of in the beginning. I thought, oh, man, that just sounds hokey. This stop, think, act, and review. And then we've had this happen in our personal life a number of times. It's pretty pretty funny, but I'll be flying around the kitchen, cooking dinner, answering emails, and talking on the phone all at once and have you come in and assist the situation and go, star. And it works. It works because um, otherwise errors will occur. So it is a, it's a very good tool.
0: Absolutely, it works really well. So in other words, before I touch that wire, let me stop and think about it. is that the right wire? Uh, you know, it, it, it does work very, very well. You know, a follow-up, and that's a self-check, and a follow-up to that is a peer check. A peer check is where another electrician double-checks that person, and it should be used in conjunction with a self-check like STAR. So in other words, an experienced electrician who's familiar with the work just double-checks that electrician to make sure they've done the right thing. This is particularly important uh, in things like assembly, where misassembly could occur, where the electrician, they check themselves and they turn around the other electrician and say, hey, double-check and make sure I did the right thing here. Those two things in combination are very powerful for reducing errors. Another tool, and this is a really good tool, is called three-way communication. Three-way communication is a verification tool to clear up misunderstanding oftentimes events occur because somebody misunderstands work instruction or they misunderstand the practices or they misunderstand the parts that they're supposed to install or the sequence that they're supposed to install those and so you know the the problem is oftentimes we tell somebody something just because we told them we assume that they understood course you know how you spell assume right now that being said three-way communication the way it works is let's say for example a supervisor gives a work instruction to a lower level supervisor who is then supposed to pass that work instruction down to the crew that supervisor will give that work instruction and then have them to repeat it back now if they lost any detail they clarify they say no let me tell you again they tell them again, then they have to repeat it back again. Once they are sure that that person understands and they have not lost any detail, then that lower level supervisor does the exact same thing for the employees that they're giving instruction to. So in other words, you know, it kind of comes out of the military, be honest with you. If you've ever been in in the military or like uh, even watched like a submarine movie, And when a captain gives a command, they always have to repeat that command back so that misunderstanding or misinterpretation doesn't cause them to drive that submarine to to an underground or an underwater mountain.
1: But you know, some of that comes back to our system, Mike, and the um, leadership skills and abilities is part of that is we can talk about three-way communication, but what it really takes for a lot of folks to incorporate that use is practice. Yeah, and it also takes some some culture changes because, you know, in, in my work in construction and in, in my past, it's a, an awful lot of folks feel that um, if I didn't understand what the supervisor told me or I miss part of it, then then I'm bad, and and opening up that ability for us to communicate.
0: Exactly. Exactly. You know, another tool is called Stop When Unsure. Now, what that has to do with is oftentimes, somebody might either misunderstand or maybe they don't have the skill levels. They're not quite sure about how to do the work. Now, what they should do is stop. A lot of accidents occur when people proceed in the face of uncertainty. So. Training people when they're unsure about something or they question something just to stop the work, get with the supervisor, get clarification, get agreement, then the work can proceed. Another one that is very similar to that, but that uh, is actually listed as a different tool, is called questioning attitude. And what that is, is to encourage the workers to question everything. If they're unsure about something, if a drawing is unclear, if, 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 if for any reason they don't feel comfortable with the work that they're about to do, is to question that, question the supervisor. And, you know, that can be used in conjunction with this stop when ins- unsure, but to question everything and, and, and feel free to ask plenty of questions until they're completely comfortable or until they have resolution uh, if there is uh, a conflict.
1: But even that questioning attitude, um, HP Tool can't work unless you have a culture and you have leadership styles that are open to that. And there's an awful lot of places I go that workers would be hesitant to do that questioning.
0: Yeah. So it does. It gets back to culture, and that's you know part of the whole systems thinking part. What is our culture like? Exactly. What is the leadership like? workers can only do what they're allowed to do. They can only be as successful as we allow them to be. Exactly. You know another tool, while we're talking about tools, uh, uh, outlined in this standard is flagging and barriers, or as it's referred to in the standard is blocking. And what that has to do with is people operating components or controls, for example, that may have a lot of complexity to it. Maybe you've got a a control system that has a lot of buttons and dials. And you only, the flagging has to do with flagging off what you want somebody to operate. So for example, let's say you have a panel that's got 10 buttons on it, but you only want that worker to operate two of those buttons. What you would do is put something on there like a little green sticky dot or something to identify this is the control to operate. Don't touch anything else. These are the only ones we want you to operate. Now barriers or blocking are there to make sure somebody doesn't touch something or operate something that they should not. And so if you get back to that same example about a control panel with the 10 buttons, maybe those two buttons that we talked about are the ones you don't wanna touch. They can touch anything else on there but don't touch those two buttons. In that case, you would put something across them, like a piece of red tape uh, or some kind of little sticky thing that, that's identified. It's all agreed to up front, what that means, but it lets them know don't touch that. You could also use those in combination where you flag all things you do want people to touch or operate, and you barrier off the things that you don't want them to do.
1: Getting back to systems thinking, which is what HP is really about. How do we ensure the integrity of our systems?
0: One way is to fully understand the human performance operating philosophy and to apply the principles. We have way too many managers and safety professionals who are still stuck in the 90s with the old crime and punishment blame shame and retrain mentality. Once they understand HP, it results in a paradigm shift in how we manage safety. Another way is to make sure every manager, every supervisor, and every safety person responsible for electrical work has an understanding of NFPA 70E, at least the major components, and apply them. This also includes owners and general contractors.
1: What we tend to see out there is a glaring lack of knowledge <laughs> about this standard and also about how to ensure the integrity, which includes the audit process. Um, As far as knowledge goes, uh, a couple of examples that come to my mind. One was uh, walking a job with a general contractor safety uh, person. And he'd gotten real in depth with some of the crews about some fall protection issues and so forth and so on. And we came across the electricians and I said, hey, you want to stop and talk to the electricians. And his comment was, no, um, I really don't know much about electrical safety and they know a whole lot more than I do. So I pretty much leave that in their hands. And I'm thinking, well, that's just not really a good idea. Um, I have done things as far as auditing. Now, the standard is, is very Uh, detailed in the requirements for auditing, but the integrity of the audit process is critical. It can't just be a piece of paper that we're documenting that auditing process. Uh, You have to have conversations with people. So for example, I have before um, gone and taken a lotto procedure and gone out into the field and go up to the crew and say, hey, um, I got a copy of your lotto procedure here. And hey, I'm not an electrician, don't know that much, always trying to learn, but is it okay with you if I just tag along uh, while you do your lockout tag out? And what has come out of that a lot of times is that I discover that the procedure is flawed because we get to step number six and I'm saying, hey, here's step number six. They go, yeah, well, you you can't even do that in this scenario. So we just skip that. Well, that is a critical piece of information because you've now found that you've got a flawed system, which is absolutely critical to correct that and to have a robust procedure itself. Same vein, I've had an electrician tell me, well, you know, we usually just skip that step. And they admit that to me. So if you're not... Not only doing a formal audit and auditing on a vigorous process here, but also using that opportunity to have conversation with the people that are doing the work in a manner. And so they they trust you, so they can safely tell you where their problems are, then you're not going to be able to determine the validity of your system. Back to lack of knowledge, I remember being on a large hospital project and I asked the general superintendent what uh, energized work, what type work would need um, NFPA 70E uh, oversight. And his comment was to me, well, we never do any kind of work like that. So there won't be anything like that on this project. And I'm like, hospital project, are you kidding me? Had the conversation, well, what about diagnostic and testing? And his response to that was, well, you don't need any of that stuff for that. So I'm telling you that we have a glaring lack of knowledge of the standard and of the HP principles that flow into that standard at both the safety professional level and also at the supervisor level and and even at the owner level a lot of times where we interface contractors and owners. So good good opportunity for us to increase that uh, knowledge out there today. And, do, and just because you're not an uh, electrical expert, don't have an electrical background, trust me, you can learn a little more about electrical safety.
0: And they'll teach you.
1: And they will willingly teach you. And they'd be happy to know that someone thinks enough about them to learn from them.
0: Absolutely.
1: Well, that's it for today, folks. Um, Hope you found this podcast of some value. And please consider uh, taking one of our virtual NFPA 70 courses and, of course, our HB courses. Those are all offered on our open calendar or we do specific offerings for your organization. If you want to know more about that or register, just go to prosafesolutions.com and click on Open Courses. Thanks so much for spending time with us, Mike. Thanks, folks. Great seeing everybody. See you next time.